teachability. It's the quality that's demonstrated in the lives of those who love to increase their comprehension through instruction. The teachable person has ears that are open. They're willing to learn and they're ready to receive the suggestions as well as the corrections offered by others. Uh, Sadly, this world is actually filled with a whole lot of unteachable people. Unteachable people who are unwilling to receive the instructions and the corrections of others. And as a result, they're quick to get defensive the very second someone presents them with challenging information. Now, if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then it's my hope that our study today will help us to understand the importance of becoming teachable believers who are always ready to listen and always ready to learn. Here in our text today, we find Luke. He's continuing to describe the life of the Lord Jesus. And while we don't know a great deal about the childhood of Jesus, what we do know is that the supernatural son of Mary experienced the same process of maturity that we all endure, which included the education process by which we learn more about the world around us. And as we consider the way that the Lord Jesus learned, we're also going to consider the qualities of a teachable person. And as we consider these qualities, we're going to ask ourselves, are we passing the test of teachability? Here in our time today, we're going to see, first of all, that teachable believers learn reverentially. Not only that, but we'll also see that teachable believers listen respectfully. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that teachable believers live responsively. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Here we find Luke. He's describing the way that our Savior was a teachable student. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Luke's gospel account, I want to take a moment to confess that I personally was not a teachable student when I went to school. As a matter of fact, I was that kid. You know the one, uh, the one that the, that the teacher sends on special errands so that all the other kids can learn. I was that kid. I was the kid that couldn't wait to get out of class because I wanted to go and do something fun. And, and sitting there in class and learning stuff, I just hated it. You know, especially when we got to algebra and they tried to convince me that we could somehow calculate letters. No, you know, they wanted to know where X was and I could always find it. it's right there on the page. It's that X right there. There it is. I wasn't interested in learning. I just wanted to go have fun. I wasn't teachable. This sounds like something that you struggle with if you're thinking right now, yeah, I'd like to leave this lesson right now. It's my hope that you'll begin to follow the example that was set by the Lord Jesus by becoming teachable believers who are ready to learn with reverence. And with this as our goal, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 2, I want to consider the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading there at verse 39. Here Luke declares, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Now here in these verses we find Mary and Joseph as well as Jesus. They're returning to their hometown of Nazareth after the day of Jesus' circumcision. And according to Luke, the baby Jesus grew. He grew, which is to say that he physically developed in the same way that every healthy baby experiences the process of maturation. Infants become toddlers, and then toddlers eventually turn into stinky teenagers who think they know everything. You know how it is. 
Most teenagers think that they know it all, and yet I would remind you that the child of Mary was actually the omniscient, or in other words, all-knowing son of God, and what this means is that Jesus, the teenager, actually did know everything. He truly did. But now this raises a bit of a conundrum, and we should take a moment to tackle an important question, and the question is this, how could Jesus be both a teachable child and at the same time an all-knowing Savior? How can both be true? Why would Jesus need to learn and grow in wisdom if he is the omniscient or all-knowing son of God? And in order to answer this question, we should spend a a minute remembering the limitations that our Savior embraced through the incarnation. The divine nature of the Son allowed his omniscience to be veiled with the frailty of humanity. In other words, the deity of Jesus put on the blindfold of his humanity in the incarnation. And with this as the focus, I want to consider something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to the second chapter of Colossians. As you're making your way to Colossians chapter 2, I want to take a moment to remind you about the doctrine of the incarnation. You see, it was just a few weeks ago when we took the time to examine the incarnation of Christ. It was during that study when we learned that Jesus was not only the human child of Mary, but he is also the infinite son of God, which is why the prophet Isaiah referred to him as Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. Jesus Christ has two natures. He's 100% man and 100% God. Let's consider how Paul describes the incarnation here in Colossians chapter 2. If you would look with me again, uh, there beginning at verse 8, here Paul declares, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Jesus, in him dwells All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Here in these verses, Paul, he's assuring his audience that Jesus was no ordinary man. Instead, Jesus is the physical incarnation of the divine word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And while it would be easy for us to think that the humanity of Jesus was being empowered by his infinite uh, divinity, uh, the reality is that the infinite divinity of Jesus embraced the limitations of his humanity. The deity of Jesus Christ embraced the blindfold of his humanity so that the divinity of Jesus could experience life as a human. In order to prove my point, let's spend some time considering some of the limitations that the infinite Son of God experienced during the days of his incarnation while he was here on the earth. Uh, One example of this can be seen in the limitation of power that he experienced. Remember, uh, the divinity of the word is the omnipotent or all-powerful Son of God. And yet the omnipotent Son of God came and, and, and was a baby lying in a manger who couldn't stand up on his own two feet. That's limited power. 
within the divinity of Jesus. He had all the power uh, to create the entire universe, and yet in his incarnation, he couldn't stand up as a baby. We also know that the omnipresent nature of the Son was limited to the physical location of his human flesh. And let's not forget that Jesus... He didn't even know the time of his second coming, which reveals a limitation on his omniscience. I like the way that Paul sums up all of these limitations in Philippians chapter 2, where he tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, and yet he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The infinite divinity of the Christ embraced the limitations of his human nature that he received through the physical incarnation. While it's true that the end goal of the incarnation was to provide us with a substitutionary sacrifice so that sinners could be saved. It's also true that our Savior became a man so that we might become the adopted children of God. Therefore, it was necessary for the Christ to embrace the frailty of humanity, which includes the human experience of growing and learning. With all of this in mind, let's turn back to Luke chapter 2. I want to consider again the example of teachability that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would look with me there at Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Here again, Luke tells us that the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, as we take another look at this verse, we can see that Jesus not only grew up physically, but he also grew spiritually strong, and and he was enabled to also mature intellectually as he was filled with wisdom. And what this means is that that Jesus was a child who received the instructions of the word, and he did so with humble reverence. In this way, he became a teachable student who was empowered by the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And in order to prove my point, I want to consider something that the Lord revealed through the prophet Isaiah. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. As you make your way to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, I want to take a moment to consider the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is most certainly a wonderful thing. And those who want to become knowledgeable... Well, we, we must first be teachable so that we can acquire that knowledge. And yet at the same time, it's important for us to understand that knowledge without wisdom is nothing more than ineffective information. Knowledge without wisdom is nothing more than ineffective information. The reason I say this is because wisdom is the understanding of how to apply the knowledge that we've acquired. If you have all the knowledge in the world and you don't know how to use it, it's ineffective information. Therefore, we need not only knowledge, but also wisdom. With all of this in mind, let's consider uh, the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that was demonstrated by our Savior Jesus. It's here in Isaiah chapter 11, where the prophet Isaiah presents us with information about the Messiah who wouldn't yet be born for 730 more years. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at Isaiah chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Isaiah declares, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and 
understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Now here in these verses, we find Isaiah. He's prophetically describing the ministry of the Messiah 730 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And according to this Messianic prophecy, uh, the Lord Jesus was not only empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit empowered him with knowledge, gave him the knowledge that, that he needed. He was also empowered by the spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God was sent to help Jesus to learn and grow in knowledge and in understanding and in wisdom. At the same time, what this also tells us is that Jesus was a teachable child. He had to receive the instruction of the Holy Spirit. And he received the instruction of God's word with reverential respect. How do I know this? Well, we find it here in Isaiah chapter 11. Look with me again there, beginning at the end of verse 2, where Isaiah tells us that the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in what? The fear of the Lord. Now, that word fear was translated from a Greek word, which in this context refers to the holy reverence that leads a person to embrace the truth of God's word. That word fear speaks of the pious veneration that helps us to realize that God is always right and when our opinions differ, we are wrong and he is right. In light of this definition, we can see then that the son of Mary was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Why? Well, because he continually received the inspired instructions of the Holy Spirit with reverential veneration of God the Father. The Lord Jesus confirms this in John chapter 12. It's there where he declares, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Whatever the Father told Jesus, that's what he spoke. The knowledge and understanding and wisdom that was provided to him by the Spirit of God, that is what he proclaimed. Therefore, God the Father was the one who empowered his only begotten Son with the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, and the spirit of wisdom. And at the same time, we must not lose sight of the fact that Jesus was a young boy who was able to receive this download of divine wisdom because he was a teachable student who was willing to walk with reverential fear of his heavenly father. It's my hope that we too will all become teachable believers who are following in the example of our Savior. And with this as our goal, we should consider something that King Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. If you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to the 15th chapter of Proverbs. And as you make your way to Proverbs chapter 15, I want to take a moment to address those who are quick to dismiss the inspired instructions that we find in the Word of God. 
I can't even begin to count the number of times that I've heard believers disregarding the doctrinal truths of God's word simply because they have a different opinion. They have their opinion, and then they hear the Bible says this or that, and they just don't agree with it. And so without any fear of God, without any respect for the word of God, they just have their own opinion. What they fail to realize is that those who reject the word of God end up suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development. That's why you see so many Christians get stuck on some weird doctrine and it just becomes the, the very thing that, that, that keeps them from moving forward and growing in the Lord. With this in mind, I want to consider the challenge that King Solomon presents here in Proverbs chapter 15. If you would look with me there at verse 31, here Solomon declares, the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Christian, listen. Those who want to be filled with the infinite wisdom of God, we must be humble enough to maintain a teachable heart. And those who want to maintain a teachable heart, we must make sure that we're willing to walk in humility. It's the humility that, that, that brings reverential veneration of God and his word. And then as we walk in the humility of reverential veneration, that's how we begin to receive the wisdom that we need, which enables us to take the knowledge of God's word and then align our lives accordingly to the doctrinal instructions that we find here within it. In this way, the fear of the Lord is what helps us to become teachable believers who are growing in knowledge and understanding, and wisdom. And while it's true that the teachable believer is ready to learn reverentially, it's also true that teachable believers are also ready to listen respectfully. With this as the focus, let's make our way back to the second chapter of Luke's gospel account. Here we find Jesus. He's continuing to present us with a perfect example of what it means to be teachable. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 2, beginning there at verse 41. Here Luke tells us that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now here in these verses we find Luke, he's telling us about this Passover pilgrimage that Joseph and Mary observed every year. You might not know this, but the Lord actually instructed the Israelites to make three trips to Jerusalem every year. This included the summer festival of Shavuot, which took place at the time of Pentecost. Then there was the fall festival of Sukkot, which was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's also known as the Festival of Ingathering. Finally, there was the spring festival known as Passover, which was the annual celebration commemorating the way that God freed his people from their Egyptian slavery. And according to Luke here, here in, in chapter 2, uh, we learn that Joseph led his family to Jerusalem every year in order to observe the, the Passover festival. And seeing how the distance from Nazareth, their hometown, to Jerusalem, where the festival was uh, observed, uh, this was a 70-mile journey, and, and so it would have taken them at least five days to make this journey, and uh, much like the holidays here in America, you better believe that the roads there in Israel were completely packed with travelers as people from all over Israel made their way to Jerusalem. 
And with all of this in mind, I want to pick up our study beginning there at verse 43, because here Luke tells us when they had finished the days, they, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it, supposing him to have been in the company. And they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, here in these, these verses, we learned about this day when this 12-year-old Jesus decides to linger behind in Jerusalem as his family starts heading back to Nazareth. And while every parent here today might be wondering, well, how could they lose sight of their child? Shame on them. How, how could they lose their son in Jerusalem? Don't be rushed to judge. You know, I, I, I would remind you the fact that it was after the birth of Jesus when Mary and Joseph went on to increase the size of their family with even more kids. It's actually in Mark chapter 6 where we find those who knew Jesus. They referred to the brothers of Jesus, and we learned that Jesus had the brothers James, Joses, Judas, and Simon, so he had four brothers. And not only that, but they also mentioned his sisters who remain nameless, but it's not sister, but sisters, plural, so that's at least two girls. And what this means is that Jesus had at least six siblings and possibly more, depending on how many daughters that Mary and Joseph had. So regardless of this unknown quantity of sisters, what we do know is that Mary and Joseph had several kids. And I'll remind you that Jesus is the oldest. He's 12 at this point in time when he lingers behind in Jerusalem. And with that being the case, it only stands to reason that all of his siblings uh, had already been born uh, throughout those 12 years. And, and the chances are a few of them were still toddlers. With that being the case, it doesn't surprise me to discover that uh, Mary and Joseph were probably giving more attention to the youngest kids than to the oldest. I don't know, you know, it just seems to me like having six or more kids seems like a, a lot of work to keep them all corralled and, and going in the same direction. And, and, and chances are they're, they're, the least of their concerns was Jesus. You know, he was perfect, so they didn't have much to worry about. Not only that, but every Israelite from the surrounding region, uh, there, uh, from Galilee, uh, they were all simultaneously traveling the same road leading out of Jerusalem up into the area of Galilee. And as we consider all of the kids that they already had, as well as the massive crowd that was all leaving together, and everyone from Nazareth was, was probably headed together in the same company, in the same caravan, it's easy to believe that they just failed to notice that Jesus wasn't in the group. We should also notice that Mary and Joseph assumed that he was hanging out with the caravan that was headed back to Nazareth. And if you would notice with me again there at verse 44, here we learn that they supposed him to have been in the company. They went a day's journey and then sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Or in other words, they just assumed that he was probably hanging out with friends. You know, he probably had some, some little 12-year-old buddies that lived in Nazareth. They're thinking, oh, they're, they're probably over it. They're probably hanging out with the other guys. Probably thought that he was hanging out with family members as they all made their way back to Nazareth. And it took them a day of traveling before they realized, we don't have Jesus with us. That's when they realized that they needed to turn around and go back to Jerusalem. Now, if you think it's difficult to travel when the roads are packed with people all headed in the same direction, 
Imagine for a moment how difficult it was for Mary and Joseph to now turn around and head back to Jerusalem against the flow of traffic. Imagine the multitude of worshipers streaming out of the city, all headed home after the Passover festival. Uh, You know, it would be like trying to re-enter the parking lot of a massive stadium as all the fans uh, of the game are now leaving. I I would just give up, forget it. It's for this reason that it took them twice as long to get back to Jerusalem than it it took for them to get down the road. And in order to prove my point, look with me again there at Luke chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to verse 46 where Luke again declares, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now, uh, here in these verses, we learn that they found Jesus after three days. So it took them one day to realize that he was missing, but then it took them two more days to get back to Jerusalem and start searching for him. And I have no doubt that the travel time back to Jerusalem took twice as long as they found themselves moving against the flow of traffic. It's also interesting to note that there seems to be some foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection here, which we find in this story. I'll remind you that the Lord Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was then buried in a tomb, and then he rose from the grave on the third day. It was on the third day that he rose from the grave. It was on the third day when he told the the women uh, to, to go and tell the apostles to look for him. And so after the third day, he met with his disciples. This is certainly an interesting parallel, and this seems to foreshadow the three days that Jesus spent in the tomb. Now, we should also notice that Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of a group of teachers. Not only that, but it's there in the middle of verse 46 where Luke tells us that Jesus was listening to them. That word listening was translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who give their attention to a teacher. It's also a word that was used to describe those who not only hear the teachings of a teacher, but they also attempt to understand and comprehend what's being taught. You see, it's one thing to listen to the words being taught. It's a whole other thing to seek comprehension, to gain understanding of the lesson. And it's for this reason that the teachable person should listen inquisitively. The teachable person should listen, but with ears that are, are, are thinking, how, what does this mean? And, 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 and what else can I learn from this? Or how can I apply this to my life? With this in mind, if you would look with me again there in the middle of verse 46, where we find the example of Jesus. Here, Luke tells us that Jesus was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and doing what? He was asking them questions. Here in the second half of this verse, we find Jesus presenting excellent questions to the teachers who were there at the temple, and I have no doubt that Jesus respectfully listened to the answers that those teachers were offering. Not only that, but it's also obvious to me that Jesus, uh, though he was only 12 years old at this point in time, he had already learned a great deal as he grew in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. The proof of this can be seen in the answers that he offered as he conversed with the teachers there in the temple. As a matter of fact, Look with me again there at verse 47. Here we learn that all who heard him, 
were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Chances are he's sitting there with these teachers. He's listening to them respectfully. He's asking them more questions. And they might be responding with, with asking him questions. And, and, and he's providing answers and, and showing what he understands. And they were all amazed that this 12-year-old boy had such an a, a, a incredible grasp on the truth of God's word. Of course, he is the word incarnate. And so we're not surprised but they were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And we know that he had already learned a lot in the 12 years that had already passed. And the chances are he had been listening to the instructions that his mother and his adoptive father uh, had provided him. And, and apparently they were both biblically astute. And it's my guess that Jesus also spent time listening and learning uh, at the feet of the teachers who were there in Nazareth where he spent much of his childhood. And as a result, the teachers at the temple were impressed by his questions and, and they were astonished by his understanding. And clearly they recognized that he was a teachable student. He was a teachable student because he listened respectfully. This reminds me of the, the encouragement that King Solomon presented in Proverbs chapter 19. It's there where he declares, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Do you want to be wise in your latter days? Then listen. Listen to counsel and receive instruction Let's follow the example of Jesus who respectfully listened to the teachers who were there at the temple. And in light of his example, I encourage every Christian to make sure that we're becoming teachable believers who are always ready to respectfully listen to the teachers that the Lord raises up. And as we do, we will grow in the knowledge, in the understanding, and in the wisdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we see then that teachable believers uh, were ready to learn reverentially, and teachable believers are ready to listen respectfully. Thirdly and finally, it's important to understand that teachable believers will also live responsively. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to the second chapter of Luke's gospel account where we find Jesus. He's continuing to present us with a perfect example of what it means to be teachable. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 48. Here Luke writes, So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son... Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now here in these verses we find Mary and Joseph. They're expressing the emotional anxiety that they experienced as they had searched for their oldest son. Mary even scolded Jesus by declaring, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. I have no doubt that Mary was filled with anxiety until they found Jesus. And as we, as we consider this question, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. I have no doubt that Mary was still aware of the fact that Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. I don't think she was confused about this. At the same time, though, it had been 13 years since the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would give birth to a supernatural son. It had been 12 years since Joseph assumed the role of Jesus' adoptive father. 
And with that being the case, uh, Mary and Joseph were clearly confused about this business that Jesus was conducting there at the temple. With this in mind, look with me again there at verse 29 where Jesus asks, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. As we consider their confusion, it's my guess that they wondered what the teachers there at the temple had to do with Joseph's carpentry business. The reason I say this is due to the fact that Joseph was a carpenter by trade, and it's in Matthew chapter 13 where we learn about the day when the people who were at the synagogue in Nazareth, they described Jesus as being the carpenter's son whose mother was called Mary. Joseph was a carpenter by trade, and, and, and probably you know, Jesus grew up learning the carpentry business, because this is what you would do in the, in the land of Israel. You would learn your father's trade, and that's what you would be when you grew up. And, and so when Jesus refers to his father's business, they're probably scratching their head thinking, what, the teachers here at the temple, what, do they need some cabinets? You know, do they need some new chairs and a table, or what? What do they need, you know? Confused. What, what, what sort of business are you conducting here? Well, it's true that they were confused about what Jesus meant. It's also true that Jesus was beginning to understand that he was called to accomplish something greater than carrying forward Joseph's carpentry business. No disrespect to any carpenters here this morning. It's a wonderful trade, and yet the Lord Jesus was called to do something much more important than the business of his adoptive father. He was called to accomplish the business of his heavenly father. While he recognized that he needed to accomplish the business of his heavenly father, Jesus also realized that it was still a requirement for him to live in obedience with his earthly parents until the day when God the Father called him to begin his earthly ministry. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 51. Here Luke writes, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now here in these verses we find Luke, he's summarizing the years of Jesus' life from the time of his adolescence at 12 until he was 30. Just gives us one brief statement that summarizes the whole thing. According to Luke, Jesus returned home with his parents, his adoptive father Joseph and his earthly mother Mary, and it was there where he subjected himself to their parental authority. Or in other words, Jesus was an obedient son until the day when God the Father called him to begin his earthly ministry, which took place at the age of 30. Sadly, it's difficult for many people to accept Luke's brief summation of the time that transpired between the temple visit at the age of 12 and his first miracle, which took place at the wedding in Cana when Jesus was 30. As a result, there are many who attempt to answer uh, what they assume to be uh, the, the unanswered question. And the question is, what really happened during the so-called missing years of Jesus' life? What really happened? 
one of the most common beliefs is that Jesus went to the Himalayas where he allegedly studied under yogis in India and Nepal and Tibet. Yeah, that happened. Then there are those who insist that Jesus went with his uncle to England and there he studied with the Druids of Glastonbury. Some people believe that Jesus became a disciple of a Buddhist master near Mount Fuji. It was there where he tripped on shrooms and smoked a lot of pot. Others insist that Jesus was the white prophet who visited the natives in North and Central and South America. Clearly, there is no shortage of half-baked theories concocted by those who are fully baked. And these people want nothing more than to insert Jesus into their belief system without any evidence at all. If you want to know where Jesus was during the so-called missing years, look with me again here at Luke chapter 2. It's verse 51. It's very plain. Luke tells us he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. During that time, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Both God and men there in Nazareth knew exactly where Jesus was. He wasn't tripping on shrooms. He wasn't in Nepal. You know, he wasn't in America. He was in Nazareth, obeying his parents according to the word of God. He remained subject to his parents according to the Mosaic law because that's what he learned from those who taught him. He remained there until the day when God the Father led him to begin his earthly ministry. That's right. Jesus stayed living at home until he was 30, just like a millennial. So if you're still living in your parents' basement, it's biblical. You're just following the example of Jesus. But it was during those days when Jesus continued to demonstrate what it means to be teachable. He continued to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He continued to grow and learn and was in good standing with the people who watched him grow. He increased in wisdom according to the word of God. That word increased, which is found there at the end of verse 52, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who proceed to move forward. It refers to those who are making progress. He moved forward in wisdom. He made progress in wisdom. Jesus was not only learning reverentially and listening to his teachers respectfully, but he was living responsively as he moved forward in perfect obedience. Jesus confirmed this fact in John chapter 6 where he described his unwavering obedience by declaring, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the will of his heavenly father according to the instructions that he had received from the Holy Spirit. He was perfectly obedient. And Paul even described the extent of Jesus' obedience in Philippians chapter 2, where we learn that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. 
even the death of the cross. He obeyed the instructions of his heavenly father to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christian, listen, Jesus was not only living responsively to the lessons that he learned from his adoptive father, but he also lived responsively by obeying the instructions of his heavenly father. He did this when he allowed sinful men to nail him to the cross so that sinners like us could be saved. And in light of his example, we can see that teachable believers not only learn reverentially and listen respectfully, teachable believers will also live responsively to the information that we receive. With this as the goal, I want to consider the instructions that the Lord Jesus presented to his apostles. If you would turn with me to John chapter 13, you see it's in the 13th chapter of John's gospel account where we find the Lord Jesus. He's demonstrating what it means to be a bondservant, and he did this by washing the feet of his disciples. Now, uh, you know, that's a huge, you know, to me just, oh, washing feet. That is the true Example of a bond servant. And after washing the feet of his apostles, the Lord Jesus then challenged them to make sure that they were not only being spiritual students who were listening to the lessons that he taught, but to make sure that they were also allowing the lessons of the Lord to impact and alter the way that they were living their lives. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 13. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 13, here Jesus declares, You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so with that, we're going to take a moment here in the service. Let's all kick off our shoes. And Franco's going to come in with a wash rag. And I wouldn't do it to him. Feet are disgusting. The Germans even recognize this by wearing socks with their sandals, because that's the right way to wear sandals. Got to cover those ugly piggies up, you know, just, oh. Feet are disgusting, and yet Jesus, the bondservant, washed the feet of his disciples and then says, hey, this is my example to you. This is the lesson, not to just think, oh, cool lesson. Thanks a lot, Jesus, but now do as he has done, which means become a servant of others. As a matter of fact, look with me there at verse 16. John 13, verse 16, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you learn them. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Blessed are you if you memorize this. No. Blessed are you if you know it. No. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Christian, listen, we can spend the rest of our lives learning every, every lesson that Jesus ever taught. We, we can spend the rest of our lives memorizing every word that Jesus spoke, and yet we won't actually enjoy the blessing of believing until we're actually applying the truth of God's word to our life. Rather than being a forgetful hearer of the word, let's become teachable believers who are living responsively as we walk in obedience with the word and the will of God. And as we do, I know that the Lord will bless us in ways that we could have never imagined. 
as we begin to wrap up this morning's message, uh, we should take a moment to examine our own lives. We should ask, do I pass the test of teachability? Or have I become an unteachable believer? In other words, am I a teachable believer who is learning reverentially? Or am I still struggling to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? Am I still struggling because I want my opinion to be true? And as a result, I put God's word on the back burner. We should also ask, am I a teachable believer who is listening respectfully? Or am I quick to dismiss the teachings of those who present me with convicting information that I really don't want to hear? Finally, we should ask, am I a teachable believer who is living responsively or do I just ignore the instructions that the Lord has presented in the pages of his holy word because I'm just not really committed to altering my life in that sort of way? Do we pass the test of teachability or have we become unteachable believers who are failing to learn reverentially, listen respectfully, and live responsibly? With this question in mind, I remind you about the encouragement that King Solomon presented in Proverbs chapter 15. There he declares, he who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Let that soak in for a moment. He who disdains instruction, the unteachable believer, is despising his own soul. Do you despise your own soul today? Remember that the fear of the Lord is the instruction of the wisdom, and before honor is humility. Therefore, if you're currently failing the test of teachability, then you have to Acknowledge that you disdain and despise your own soul. And with that being the case, I encourage every wise believer here this morning, let's follow the example of the Lord Jesus who was completely teachable. Let's become those teachable believers who are always increasing in knowledge, in understanding, and in the wisdom of the Lord. And as we do, the Lord will bless us with all of the blessings that he's promised to pour out on believers who are teachable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank